Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. As we continue our studies through Luke's Gospel now in uh, the end of chapter 18, we're going to take two of the subsections that the, uh, the ESV editors have given us and look at them together because I believe that they teach us a, a truth. As we see them together, we'll see uh, 12 disciples who don't understand what Jesus is telling them, and then we will see one blind man who, stand, who understands a little bit better than those around him who Jesus is. I think this will be a good contrast for us to see as we read in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31, and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 43. If you haven't found that yet, you can find it on page 878 of most ESVs. Luke chapter 18, we'll read beginning in verse 31 and on to verse 43. Before we read, let's go again to the Lord and seek his blessing by prayer. Let's pray. O Lord our God, this is your word, given by your Spirit, and we pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes. O Lord, we would see Jesus. Help us to see him and know him, and to be his followers, and to be your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve... He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we read and study it together today. I know that, uh, that some of you already know the story, I've told it before, the story of, uh, of my afternoon with my wife's distant cousin, Bruce. Uh, Bruce was an old bachelor. Uh, he uh, was the first cousin of Sarah's grandmother, actually. So a, a relative, I don't know how many times removed, whatever that is. But, uh, but since he lived alone, since he was a bachelor, he was, he was always eager to spend time with extended family. So shortly after we were married, we received an invitation from Nana to come to her house and, and to get to know Bruce over a game of Scrabble. Now, an important uh, detail for this story is the fact that Bruce was blind. Uh, Bruce lost his sight as a baby. He spent his entire life, at that point, 60-some-odd years, uh, in darkness, and he wanted to play Scrabble with us. I wasn't sure how that was going to go, and I, I sensed that perhaps we might have a little unfair advantage, but we went. We agreed, and we had a lovely time. Well, we found out uh, how it is that Bruce 
uh, played Scrabble. He had his own board, a special board with tiles, uh, with traditional letters and also with braille letters. And when you put them down, they snapped into place so they didn't wobble and move around. Uh, and other than that, it was the same game. <laughs> it was the same letters, the same rules, the same triple word scores. But every time anyone would put down a word, Bruce would feel the board and he would memorize the entire board as we went along. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it in my entire life, and I don't think I had ever lost a game of Scrabble so badly in my adult life. He was fantastic. He trounced us. Here I am thinking, well, my wife is an English major, so she'll have a leg up. No, no, Bruce was really, really good at Scrabble because he could see and he could strategize in a way that we weren't able to. Now, an interviewer once asked Helen Keller, isn't it terrible being blind? And she replied, it's better to be blind and to see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing at all. Now, the scripture we've just read is, is about two different ways to see Jesus. There were these 12 sighted apostles who didn't understand what Jesus was telling them, what was right in front of them. And then there was this one blind beggar who could see what few others did. There are two ways to see Jesus. There there's a way of seeing Jesus with the eyes of our flesh, and there's a way of seeing Jesus with the eyes of our faith. And only one way of seeing Jesus comprehends who he really is. Only one way of seeing Jesus makes us followers of him. So today I want to contrast these, these two groups, these two ways of seeing. We're going to see first the, the wide-eyed ignorance of the apostles, and then the blind belief of this beggar. Those are the two halves of our, our passage, wide-eyed ignorance and blind belief. I should start, I think, by uh, defining my terms because I'm insinuating that the apostles were ignorant, and I, I don't mean it uh, as a put-down, the way that we sometimes use it uh, as an epithet against somebody else. It, I simply mean that there was something they didn't know, and we all fit that description in various ways. There, there are things that all of us don't know, and that... Uh, the grid of what I don't know and what you don't know, it overlaps in some places but not in others. I'm, I'm ignorant of calculus, and many of you know it. I've never seen Gone with the Wind. I couldn't tell you the first thing about playing a game of cricket. There are, there are all sorts of things that we don't know, and that's not a put-down. It, it simply means that I'm ignorant in, in regard to some things, and so it was for the apostles. Verse 34 tells us that when Jesus told them what was about to happen in Jerusalem, they understood none of these things. Now, they could hear the words. They could tell you what he said. They could put the grammar and the nouns and the verbs together and tell you uh, what he was telling them, but they didn't really understand the importance of what he was teaching them. They couldn't grasp the, the significance of Jesus saying that he was going up to fulfill the mission that he was sent to fulfill through his own suffering and sacrifice. They, they couldn't grasp that. Well, they knew the gospel message in a general sense, I suppose. They had been with Jesus now almost three years. They went around with him. They knew that he, he preached the message of good news of, of God's kingdom. And they knew that through Jesus' preaching, through his, through his healings, through driving out demons, the, the power of God was breaking into their world where they are. The Holy Spirit was waking people up by faith and by repentance. They knew that Jesus proclaimed peace and, and forgiveness and a future with the Father. But when it came to the suffering that would make all of that possible, they were completely ignorant. 
it's pretty typical uh, for the apostles. We see them ignorant in, in other places as well. And it, and it wasn't for a lack of teaching that, uh, that they were ignorant. This is now the third time that Jesus explicitly foretells his death at the hands of wicked men in Jerusalem. There had been other illusions. There had been other hints along the way. But now Jesus, again, plainly tells them he's going to be handed over and he's going to be beaten and he's going to be mocked and he's going to be shamed and scourged and executed and buried. And on the third day, he will rise. He's telling them because he wants them to know when it happens that it wasn't some incidental happenstance. It was all foretold. It was all written about the Son of Man by the prophets. It shows up in the, the prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus' suffering. Psalm 22, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Or Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It shows up in the predictions about the resurrection. Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's, that's after he makes an offering for guilt. He shall see and be satisfied. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. We could pick more references. We could keep going here and, and pulling out scripture after scripture that Jesus might have had in mind. But I think really what Jesus was trying to do was to convince them of the, the whole tenor of scripture, the, the direction that it was, it was headed, and, and the overarching theme that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he wanted them to know that without the suffering of Jesus, there is no gospel message. And he tells them now one more time, and still they're ignorant. Verse 34, they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what they said, what he said, what was said. The good news of, of Jesus' atonement, his suffering, was like a bulletin board to a blind man. It was, it was full of useful information, but it didn't do them any good because they couldn't see it. Again, this is pretty typical of the apostles. We've seen it before. We've seen their their ignorance and lots of things, the, uh, the sense that, that they seem awfully slow to pick up what, what Jesus is giving them sometimes. It's one of the difficulties of, of reading the Gospels, and we see them in one place, and Jesus feeds a multitude of people on a mountainside. He's only got a few loaves and a few fishes, and he works this wonderful miracle, and everyone goes home satisfied, and there's plenty left over, and then just a little bit later, there's a smaller crowd and it's getting about dinner time, and they come to Jesus. And how can we feed this people with bread here in this desolate place, they ask him. I mean, come on. <laughs> Weren't you paying attention? How, how many times does it take? Are you ever going to get it? They often seem to have missed the point, and we begin to look down on them for how slowly the truth sinks in. We shouldn't look down on their ignorance, though. We shouldn't be surprised at their ignorance. There were all sorts of natural reasons why they wouldn't have gotten what Jesus was teaching them. They were a product of their time, just like we're a product of our time. They had preconceptions about who the Messiah was supposed to be, just like I suppose we have conceptions about who the Messiah is. One commentator by, by the name of Norvel Geldenhuis, that's the name of somebody you want to read, Norvel Geldenhuis uh, says that no Jewish teachers of those times seem to have understood the prophecies of the suffering servant in a messianic sense. None of them. 
He says it's not until a few centuries after, actually, after, after the influence of Christian teaching that some of the Jewish commentators, some of the Jewish rabbis begin talking about two messiahs, a suffering messiah and a triumphant messiah, because they couldn't reconcile that it would be one person. And they were a product of their time. And probably like the rest of the people, the apostles were waiting for some great hero, some military leader to show up. The, the apostles were probably waiting uh, for Jesus, for the Messiah to be somebody who would reign and conquer. And Jesus kept telling them that he was going to be rejected. He was going to be condemned. And they didn't get it. And then there is the fact that Jesus always seemed to be saying these things that were hard to understand. He was always speaking in, in metaphors, and they were difficult. And Jesus spoke about what a blessing it was to be poor, to be hungry, to be hated by other people. And Jesus talked about the first being last and the last being first. He told his disciples that they can only find their lives by losing it. And, and it, it always seemed a little strange sometimes, the things that Jesus was saying. And maybe this was just one more cryptic message that was meant to make them pause and think, but it didn't actually mean what it seemed like on the surface. If your hand offends you, cut it off and throw it from you. Well, he couldn't mean, not literally, right? He's going to be handed over, and he's going to be, he's going to be killed, and he'll rise. And well, he doesn't mean that, does he? Now, there are all other natural reasons why, why perhaps they couldn't understand what Jesus told them, but Luke tells us here. He tells us in this passage uh, that their ignorance was an act of God. He says that the saying was hidden from them. That is, God had hidden it from them, and it wasn't the first time. The second time Jesus foretold his suffering, we read back in chapter 9, verses 44 and 45, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that, there's a purpose here, so that they might not perceive it. It seems strange to us, maybe. Why, why would God hide something that Jesus is making known to his disciples. Uh, he has his reasons, I suppose. Maybe, uh, we can only conjecture, maybe it was so that the apostles wouldn't try to steer Jesus away from suffering like Peter wanted to do. No, Lord, that shall never happen to you, he tried to say the first time Jesus told them. So maybe it was to keep them from diverting Jesus. Maybe it was to give Judas space to work out his, his scheme, to, to get everything in line. We don't know. Maybe it was some other hidden purpose in the mind of God for his own good pleasure. We can only guess. But, but this is where the apostles' ignorance becomes instructive for us. It's instructive because so often in our arrogance, we tend to assume that the only thing we need to make right decisions in life is an abundance of information. We're competent, right? We're intelligent people. We can choose for ourselves. Just give us the info. Give us, give us the data and we'll figure it out. That's why we get on Amazon and we spend all that time reading product reviews because we're trying to buy one trinket that looks exactly like 17 other trinkets just like it. But we read all the reviews and we say, oh, I've got the best one. And if we get a lemon, it's somebody else's fault. That review was wrong. They didn't give me the right information. It, it couldn't be me, right? It's, it's a problem with the data. And that's how we think sometimes. 
The same assumption infects our spiritual lives. We think that we're intelligent, we're competent, we're able to choose the best path on our own, secretly, maybe somewhere, inwardly, even though we're reformed. We, we might like to pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, if we've received the gospel, it's because we were smart enough to understand it. There, were, there was something, lots of people have heard it, but I believed. And if other people haven't received it yet, maybe there's something wrong with them. Maybe they're just a little too dense. Maybe, maybe when we go to explain the gospel to people around us, we, we work and we sweat and, and we agonize over whether we're going to give them the right information. We're going to have the best arguments. We're going to persuade them enough to, to argue them, to convince them into the kingdom of Christ. Now the apostles are a reminder, really, of the universal blindness of all people to the message of God. If faith was dependent upon an abundance of information, who could have had more data than these men? If belief in Jesus Christ is founded on physical evidence, who could have seen more miracles than they did? If it was about having the right arguments and, and framing the, the debate in just the right way, who had ever had a better teacher than they had? Now, these 12 apostles had the greatest advantage of any human beings ever living at the time of Christ, the greatest opportunity to examine the gospel and to understand what it was about, including the suffering. And if these men, if these 12 are ignorant of this central feature of Christ's suffering, what hope is there for us who have not been where they've been, who have not seen what they've seen, who have not heard what they've heard? This passage is not so that we would look down on their ignorance. To think that if we've grasped that there must be something in us that makes us better than them or smarter than them, this passage is here to humble us. To show us the God who makes himself known where and when and to whom he chooses. This passage shows us the sovereign God who has mercy on whom he will have mercy and he hardens whom he will harden. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in a different place, in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 63, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is no help at all. And that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. That's what Jesus says about what we need to receive the gospel, to, to understand it, to grasp it by faith. That's what the apostles needed. Not just more information, not just better arguments, not just stronger proofs. What they needed was an act of God's Spirit to give them eyes of faith. Thankfully for 11 of them, that's what they received. There's a bit of foreshadowing, I think, in this passage. Because at the end of Luke's Gospel, in chapter 24, when Jesus appears to the apostles in an upper room, chapter 24, verse 45, says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what we need. Both to believe the gospel and to, and to keep growing in it, we need God to open the eyes of our faith because like them, we are all blind to the gospel until God opens our eyes. Until we realize how blind we are by ourselves, we will only rely on what we can gain by ourselves. And, and we think that we can rely on the information we have about Jesus without prayer, without faith, without God's moving of His Holy Spirit. 
By the grace of God, the apostles had their eyes opened by Jesus. What a tragedy when professing Christians, those who have access to the word, who have all the information we need to make an informed decision, what a shame when professing Christians sometimes content themselves with a kind of wide-eyed ignorance about who Christ is, what it took to save his people. Well, we see in, in verse 35 that the ignorance of the apostles is contrasted with this blind belief of a beggar. Now, by the time we've gotten this far uh, in Luke's gospel, by the time we've gotten to chapter 18, we know how these things are supposed to work. Jesus and needy people are like baking soda and vinegar, and any time they share the same space, we expect it to bubble up into a miracle. There's no difference here. We see what we expect to see here in this miracle story. But there are a few details that are remarkable that, that set this off from, from some of the other miracles that we've seen in this gospel. For one, uh, this miracle is remarkable because of where it happened. It says that Jesus is in Jericho. He's approaching Jericho. Jericho is just 15 miles away from Jerusalem, and that means that Jesus is on the home stretch. It means that a single day's journey up a notoriously dangerous road separates Jesus from all of the, uh, the, the, uh, the hosannas and the palm branches of the triumphal entry. And the city where his sacrifice is about to take place is literally on the horizon, and this is the final miracle that Luke records before the betrayal and the arrest and all of the rest of it. It's the last thing we see before Jesus enters Jerusalem. Secondly, this is remarkable because of what this beggar understood about Jesus. This, I think, is, is the real important part here. It's not a coincidence that this beggar was sitting where crowds would pass him by. Remember what time of year this is in the Jewish calendar. This is the time of Passover. And in Jericho, a city that was a sort of a way station on the way to Jerusalem, there was crowd after crowd, caravan after caravan of charitable Jewish pilgrims headed up to Jerusalem for the yearly feast. And so this is where you would expect to find this blind man. Every morning he, he tried to get the best spot he could to be as close to as many people as he could. He knew what it was to be around the crowds. He knew what it was to, to, to divide that line, to walk that line between asking for a handout and maintaining what was left of his dignity. He knew all about crowds of people passing him by and what to think about them and what to do with them. But suddenly there's a crowd that's different. We don't know what he noticed, what he, what he heard about them. that pointed out that they were different. Maybe it seemed louder or larger. Maybe it seemed more joyous. Maybe after this discussion Jesus has just had with his disciples, maybe it sounded somber, like a funeral procession. Whatever it is, when, when he learned that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, his heart was filled with joy. Jesus of Nazareth. And that title itself is pretty significant because Luke hasn't mentioned Jesus' hometown since back in chapter 4. Not since back after Jesus was, was kicked out of the synagogue there because he stood and and had the gall to preach to the people that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. And in the three years since then, the news of Jesus' ministry had been spreading all over Israel. It even came to where this beggar was sitting. He'd heard about him. 
He heard about his miracles. Maybe he heard that he was on the move healing people and, and cleansing lepers and raising the dead. Maybe he'd heard that he's on his way to Jerusalem and maybe soon would be passing by this very place. We don't know what he knew, but he knew when Jesus of Nazareth came by that this is someone special, somebody different. If there's somebody who can, who can raise the dead, somebody who can cleanse the lepers, there, there's only one explanation in this man's mind for who this person could possibly be. And so he cries out with another title for Jesus. In fact, it's the only place in Luke's gospel that we find it. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Only this blind man sees. Jesus, the son of David. Now you know what he means when he calls Jesus the son of David. And so did everybody else around him. He meant that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne over Israel. He was invoking a sort of 2 Samuel chapter 7 covenantal promise to David of old that there would be a son to sit on the throne of Israel forever. This is a claim to Jesus being the Messiah, the, the hope of the whole nation not just of this one individual beggar sitting by the side of the road. Everybody needed this one who was coming by. He was the son of David coming into the world. Now, each week at this time in the synagogues, the Jews would pray together the Amidah, the prayer of the 18 blessings. And one of the 18 petitions that they would pray would ask the Lord to have mercy on the kingdom of the house of David, on the Messiah of thy righteousness. Everybody knew what he meant. And he called Jesus the son of David. So there are the Pharisees maybe on the outskirts of this crowd and they're, they're bickering over who this person is. Maybe he's a teacher. Maybe he's a healer. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's something more. Well, this blind man sees. He sees by faith what other people missed. He sees that Jesus is, is the Savior God was sending into the world. You know, Peter said a similar thing uh, elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounced him blessed. Flesh and blood, natural understanding, and abundance of information hadn't made this known to him. But my Father who's in heaven has revealed this, Jesus said. He's opened your eyes. Blessed are you. And here's this blind man who sees by faith what others miss. That Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David, the Messiah of God's righteousness. And that brings us to the third remarkable thing about this miracle. And that is the way that his faith persisted in connecting his need with Jesus. When this blind man cried for mercy, those who were in the crowd, those who were in the front, were told, rebuked him. They treated him like the parents who were bringing their infants to be blessed and touched by Jesus. He was seen like they were seen as insignificant and inconsequential. But what does Jesus need with another needy nobody? Jesus doesn't have time for you, and they rebuked him, but that didn't deter him. It didn't slow him down even for a minute. We find that he cried out all the more. When people tried to silence his faith, he cried out all the more, continued crying the way that that tax collector in Jesus' parable prayed, Lord, have mercy upon me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And his faith persisted. 
and crying out to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, in compassion, Jesus does what he does every time someone with faith cries out to him. He stopped. You see the language there? And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Imagine that. Chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. In the previous section, Jesus tells his disciples, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. For half of Luke's gospel, he has been a man on a mission. He's going up to the scene of the crime, not yet committed to fulfill all that the Lord sent him into the world to do. He's going up with purpose. He's going up to serve the Lord, to fulfill his calling in life. He's already proved himself. Everybody knows who he is. Maybe this is the time that he can simply walk past this beggar and let somebody else take care of those who are in need. But he stopped. He stopped for a beggar full of faith, and he does the same for you, dear believer. Even though there are 100,000 other voices crying out to him in need at the same time, he stops for you. Even though there are obstacles uh, in the way of your faith that would cause you to want to shrink back from him, even though you seem so small and insignificant compared to his majesty, he stops and he listens. And he loves to ask you, like he asked this man, what he already knows you need. What do you want me to do for you, he asked this blind man. <laughs> I don't know. He asks us what he already knows we need. And he does it because he wants to give our faith, because he gives our faith room to breathe, room to grow from, from what we know of him to what we need of him to what we believe of him. It's the way he draws us closer in our prayer when, when we cry out and we tell God the things that he already knows that, that we are in need of. Well, he asked this beggar what he wanted, and there was no shy response. I want to regain my sight, he said. No hesitation. He, he asked in faith without doubting that Christ could do the undoable, and he did. And then this man hears a declaration that two others have heard in Luke's gospel. The first one to hear it was a woman who'd suffered for 12 years, with an issue of blood that cut her off from all social contact, made her unclean, kept her from the temple, kept her from engagement with anybody else, and for 12 years she suffered much at the hands of many physicians and, and spent all that she had and got no better but only got worse. The second was another beggar, a Samaritan, a leper, who together with with nine others, was cleansed and the only one to return and give thanks to the Lord. And, and now a blind man with eyes of faith who cried for mercy to the son of David. And they all heard the same declaration. Your faith has saved you. It's made you whole. It's brought you near. It's, it's restored you to life and to usefulness. It's given you hope for the future. Friends, if, if the apostles become a lesson to us about the ignorance of all people unless God opens our eyes, then this man becomes a lesson to us of what God does in his people when he opens their eyes by faith. Verse 43 tells us, Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. 
you know, all along we've been referring to this man as simply the blind man, as Luke does, or, or the beggar. Uh, this is actually one of the very few people in the New Testament who were recipients of Christ's miracles, who, who received healing power, who is given a name in the Gospels. And in Mark's Gospel, his name is Bartimaeus. R.C. Sproul says that as soon as Bartimaeus received his sight, he saw Jesus and he wanted nothing more than to follow him. And this is the desire, he continues, this is the desire of all who are given eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to follow him. Now, according to church tradition, Bartimaeus' name was remembered because after he followed Jesus up to Jerusalem, he continued following Jesus as a disciple. He became a feature of the first century church. He became a living witness to the power of Jesus Christ, and he lived out the rest of his days retelling how much Jesus had done for him, how he'd healed him, how he took him from the life of a beggar and, and made him a disciple. And that's what God does when he gives his people faith. When God opens our eyes to know Jesus, he does it so that we would open our mouths to tell other ignorant people who Christ is and what he's done for us. Not looking down on their ignorance, but knowing that we too are ignorant until God opens our eyes. Belief is meant to bud into discipleship, and discipleship is meant to blossom into witness, and the Lord uses the witnesses of one formerly ignorant beggar to, op to open the eyes of others. If the Lord has given you eyes to see Jesus, that's where he's leading you. That's where you're going if you follow him. He's calling you to follow him and to praise him and to tell lost sinners where salvation can be found. Although may the Lord give us eyes not only to see Christ as he is, but to tell others of him as well. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the Son whom you have sent into the world, the Savior of all. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have opened the eyes of many here. We pray that you would continue to keep us looking to Christ, that you would open other eyes in this congregation or through the ministry of, of your people as you send us into the world. Make us ambassadors and witnesses. Make us, O oh Lord, not haughty in ourselves, but dependent upon you. Make us those who bear witness to what you've done and who you are, that others might see and believe and put their trust in the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.